Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's really good to see you today. Do you have your Bible with you? Good. Exodus chapter 13 is where you need to turn. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you. If you don't have a Bible at all, uh, consider that one in the pew rack yours. As a gift from us, we want you to have God's Word. We want you to read God's Word. We want you to know uh, God's Word. Certainly, we want you to be able to follow along as we study it today. Over the last few weeks in this Old Testament overview series that we've been doing, uh, we have seen God's goodness, His glory in creation. We have seen man's weakness and sinfulness and corruption in the fall. We have seen God's justice and also His mercy as He punishes sin and yet makes a way for salvation. We have seen man's continued corruption and rebellion even after that. We have seen God's gracious choice of Abraham and his family to build a nation for himself, a peculiar people through whom he will bless the entire world. So we've seen creation and the flood and the call of Abraham and the exodus from Egypt. And where we left off last week was right at the edge of the Red Sea. This week we are planning to get from the Red Sea through the Red Sea to the Jordan River. A trip that shouldn't have taken very long, but ended up taking the children of Israel about 40 years. It will take us about 40 minutes, uh, 45 minutes, maybe 50 minutes. It'll take us less than 40 years to do this study today, I promise you that. We'll approach today, similar way we approached last week, looking at these kind of major scenes, uh, these major events that happened during this period of wilderness wanderings. If you have your little colorful sheet we provided a few weeks ago, that's the section we're in, Wilderness Wanderings. We'll look at each one of these major scenes and we'll try to draw out some observations, some applications from each scene. And In fact, maybe it would be best to think of these, I don't know, I think there are eight or nine of them today, as miniature sermons. Each one of these scenes really deserves at least one week all to itself. But because we're flying at high altitude to do this overview, uh, we're going to do it all pretty quickly. So let's pray together before we dive in. To the word in Exodus 13. God, we, we praise you today. We, we want to worship you. In our singing and in our listening, we want to worship you today. You're worthy of our attention. You're worthy of our affection. You're worthy of our obedience. We want to worship you today in, in everything that we do. And God, we feel like this life is wandering in the wilderness so often. So often we look back and we see that you have delivered us by your grace from our bondage. And you are, we look ahead and you are taking us to the promised land. And in the meantime, life is hard. It's dry and it's dusty. We're hungry and we're thirsty and we're weak. And I pray as Laura did today that you'll encourage the discouraged that you'll rebuke the sinful, that you'll bring us to repentance, submission to your will, that you'll teach us today from your word about who you are and who we are in the right light, in the light of who you are, that you'll teach us about ourselves and that we'll respond accordingly in worship, in devotion to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so if you're going to try to keep notes today, um, scene number one is at the Red Sea. At the Red Sea in Exodus chapter 13, the first thing we notice is the presence of God amongst the people in the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. You can look at it in verse 21 and 22. Exodus 13, 21 says, The Lord was going before them in a pillar of cloud by day to lead them on the way, and in a pillar of fire by night to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. He did not take away the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. This idea of the presence of God is going to be pretty significant as we talk about these wilderness wanderings. You're going to see the presence of God manifested in the pillar of cloud, in the pillar of fire. You're going to see the presence of God on the mountain at Sinai, in the thunder and the lightning and the terrible trumpet sound. You're going to see the presence of God come to dwell in the tabernacle when it's completed. The presence of God is highly significant as the people wander in the desert. And even though they wander, for most of the time, because of their disobedience, God does not desert them. God does not leave them. He is still among them, guiding them every step of the way. So take special note of the presence of God there in the pillar of cloud and pillar of fire. It says the Lord was going before them in the pillar of cloud. 
The next scene that we see here at the Red Sea is the miraculous deliverance through the sea. This is maybe the part of the Exodus story that you're most familiar with as God parts the sea and the people of God cross on the dry ground. This is in Exodus 14, if you flip over there. We'll pick it up in verse 13 and listen to what God's word says about this. It says, but Moses said to the people, do not fear. You remember the scene, right? They've gone out of Egypt. They get to the Red Sea and they look back and Pharaoh has changed his mind and he sent his army after the people of God. Chariots and horses, swords, men of war coming after the people. They've got the army behind them and the sea before them and they don't know what's going to happen. And Moses says, don't be afraid. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Don't you love that? This is the salvation the Lord is going to accomplish. Watch what he's about to do. He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Don't you love this? Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. As for you, lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. As for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians, so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored. I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know, the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord, when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between them, between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel, and there was a cloud along with darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so the waters were divided. Verse 22. The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right and on their left Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, his horsemen, went in after them into the midst of the sea. At the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians." Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. Thus, the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. When Israel saw the great power with which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and and in his servant Moses. Don't you love that? What a great scene that is, right? And there's some scholars that have come along uh, over the years and they've said, well, this isn't so spectacular because the language there isn't about the Red Sea. It's actually about the Sea of Reeds. And they try to point to a place uh, where there was this shallow kind of swampy area where some reeds grew. And uh, the water was only just a few inches deep, maybe a foot deep. And they, they come along and say, this is not so spectacular. God didn't take them through a monstrous deep sea. He basically took them through a swamp and it's not that big of a deal. Well, even if that is true, even if the water was very shallow, that does not destroy the miraculous nature of this story. Because even if if the water was shallow, and I don't think it was, by the way, I think this is deep water. The water was a wall on their right and on their left. But even if it was shallow water, the miracle is in the fact that God drowned the entire army of Egypt in a few inches of water. Right? So so even liberal scholars' best effort to uh, take out the miraculous nature of God's work has backfired on them because even then, there's a miracle here because God drowned a whole army in just a few inches of water. But there's a great miracle going on here, right? And God says it over and over and over again in the story. He says, watch, I'm going to save you. Watch, I'm going to save you, and I'm going to do it in a way that everyone will know that it was me. The Egyptians will know, the Israelites will know, the whole world will know that it was me. And Moses says, stand back and watch, and that's exactly what happens, right? I think maybe the application, the lesson we take from this is that God makes a way where there seems to be no way. 
right? They're standing with the Red Sea in front of them. They can't go forward. They're facing the Egyptian army in pursuit behind them. And it seems like there is no place for them to turn. And we often feel that way. That there's no way of escape for us. There's no way of salvation for us. This is a lot like the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? How in the world, how in the world could a sovereign, righteous, just God forgive sinful men? How in the world could sinful, unrighteous, rebellious, idolatrous, adulterous people be reconciled to God? How in the world could that possibly happen? Oh, well, we, we don't do so many sinful things? No way. Oh, we keep the law? No way. How in the world could sinful men be reconciled to God? Only through the cross of Jesus Christ. Where there was no way, God made a way through the death, burial, and resurrection of his own son. Jesus came to die as our substitute. God made a way where there was no way. Just like he did at the Red Sea. He has done that in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. The second scene that I want you to see today is right after this in Exodus chapter 15. The people of Israel get to the other side of the sea. They look back and they see all the Egyptians dead. They see all of their people spared. And what do they do? They sing a song about it. They sing a song about it and they dance around and they worship God. And I'm not going to read all of Exodus 15, 1 to 21 to you, but I want you to read it on your own time. I want you to see that what happens there is a poetic, musical recounting of what God has just done in delivering his people. It is emotional, it is fiery, and it is worship to the Lord who has delivered them. And the application that we want to make at this point is that this is the proper response to deliverance. This is the proper response to salvation. We sing about it. We sing about it, and we sing about it loudly. In chapter 14 of Exodus, we get the facts of how the people were saved at the Red Sea. In Exodus chapter 15, we get the feelings about how they were saved at the Red Sea. And we need to have a little bit of that in our lives. And here's one of the things I want to say as pastor of First Baptist Church in Harrisburg. I think we're good at the facts. I think we need some more feelings about those facts. I think we need to let the facts of the gospel propel us to worship God in our feelings. I think we need to sing a little louder. I think we need to sing a little bolder. I think we need to have a little more abandon when we're worshiping the Lord. Because he's brought us through something much better than a sea, has he not? He's delivered us from death and hell by his grace. And we sing songs with a frown on our face? Or worse yet, we don't sing at all? I don't, I don't know how that could happen. I, and I'm saying that as a guy who's a terrible singer. I'm not saying that as, as my wife who naturally has this talent to sing. Of course, when she has something stirring in her heart, she's going to sing. But what I want to say to you is that even if you can't sing, you should sing about the gospel. It should stir something in you that would make you want to sing, even if it's terrible. Oh, I would love to be the pastor of a church that sings terribly. <laughs> Loudly. And terribly, that no one holds back. I was talking to a lady in our Sunday school class, uh, was talking about this a couple years ago, about how her son has resolved in his heart to just let it rip on Sunday morning. Like even if no one around him is singing, he's going to be singing. We need more of that, right? This is what happens when the children of Israel come across the sea. They sing about it. Look what it says at the very end. 1520 says, Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and dancing. Some of you, that makes you nervous. Like, is, is he saying we should dance? I'm saying we're not even close to that yet. I'm not worried about timbrels and dancing in here. I just want you to sing a little bit. Okay? They went out with timbrels and dancing. Miriam answered, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and his rider, he's hurled them into the sea. Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, because death and hell have been done forever. They've been defeated forever. Death, where is your sting? Hell, where is your victory? Church, let's come awake and come alive and sing about this salvation that the Lord has given us by his grace. So we see the Red Sea. We see the song of worship. And then we see... 
In chapter 15, in the very next verses, we see grumbling and provision. That's number three today. Grumbling and provision. Look at Exodus 15, 22. It says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah because they were bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. That means bitter, right? You know that from the story of Ruth. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. Three days later. We just, we just came through the Red Sea. Wall of water on each side. Like the, the cartoon version of this has a giant whale like swimming right beside the people. You remember that? I don't know if that happened, but the cartoon has it. Either way, three days. We just come through the Red Sea. It's collapsed back on the Egyptian army. We see them all on the seashore. We're celebrating. We're singing. And three days later, we're grumbling and complaining. Moses, we don't have anything to drink. The water here doesn't taste very good. We can't drink it. Three days later, they grumble and they proclaim, and they, they complain. They don't proclaim, they complain. And this is the pattern that we're going to see throughout the wilderness wanderings period. This idea of grumbling and complaining and whining. And in fact, one of the most remarkable things, if you read through the whole text about the wilderness wanderings, is how often the people say essentially to Moses, we were better off back in Egypt. We were better. Why don't you just take us back to Egypt? We were better off when we were slaves under Pharaoh. Remember the same group of people who have been delivered by, by mirac- miraculous workings of God. They've been delivered and they say, we were better off. Why don't we just go back there? This is unbelievable, right? No, it's not so unbelievable. You and I do the same thing every day. We do the same kind of stuff all the time. What we need to remember is that God had made a promise to these people, right? He had said, I'm going to take you out of Egypt, out of slavery and out of bondage, and I'm going to take you to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that is exceedingly great, right? He said, I'm going to take you from the bondage into a great land. What he did not necessarily tell them is that the path from one to the other isn't going to be easy. And we need to see that that's the same thing he has told us. He says, I'm delivering you from sin and death and hell, and I'm going to take you to the promised land, which is heaven, right? This is all just a shadow of the substance that is to come. He says, I'm going to take you to the promised land, but the path from here to there is not going to be an easy path. And you're going to have to trust me even when life is hard. And so often as we travel this path to the promised land, so to speak, we say, God, we don't, I don't have any water to drink. This is better off when I didn't even know you. It's better off when I was back in bondage to my sin and myself. I think it's easy for us to sit back and and say, oh, you crazy Israelites back in the day, you didn't know anything. I think they would look at us and say, you think you know more than I do? You think you're doing a better job at this than I am? I don't think so at all. The road to the promised land may be difficult. Kevin DeYoung who is a pastor in Michigan that I like, that I read, I follow on Twitter. And he evidently last week was reading through this same portion of scripture that we are studying today because every time he tweeted something, it was about this. And he said this on Monday, I think it was. He said, we tend to think that the Christian life is a straight line from grace to glory. We tend to think that the Christian life is a straight line from grace to glory, but there's almost always a wilderness in between. Almost always a wilderness in between, and that is the truth. So during this period of grumbling and provision, we see the problem of the grumbling of the people. Over and over and over again, we see the problem of grumbling. They go to Moses. They whine about food. They whine about water. They whine about how difficult it is. They whine and complain and whine and complain all the time. And we have a problem of grumbling. Kevin DeYoung said, grumbling is a serious sin because it is one manifestation of a distrust of God. When we grumble, it's, a show, it's showing that we distrust God. He says grumbling is one of those sins that we universally dislike when we see it in others, but we almost invariably approve when we do it ourselves. You ever hear someone grumbling, complaining, and you just think, man, I wish they would just grow up. I can't believe they're complaining about this. You ever feel that way about yourself when you're grumbling and complaining? No, you don't. You say, I've got every right to grumble and complain. Life is hard and it's not going my way and I'll complain whether you like it or not. We dislike it in other people, but we excuse ourselves from it all the time. Last one, last tweet from Kevin DeYoung. He says, we grumble, 
when neither past provision nor future promises have any bearing on present, present faith. I think that's a good thing. And maybe that's the word you need to hear today. That if you're in the midst of this desert road, if you're in the midst of this wilderness wandering, you need to look back a little bit and remember his previous blessings in your life. You need to be able to look in the rearview mirror and say, he has brought me through the Red Sea. He has shown me his glory in the cloud and the fire. He has delivered me from the Egyptians through miracles and plagues and wonders. You need to be able to look back in your life and see those things. But you also need to be able to look ahead and say, he has promised to take me on home. He has promised to take me to glory at the end of all this. He has promised me that there will be trouble in this world, but take heart, I've overcome this world, right? We need to be able to look ahead, and that will sustain us in this present suffering. Look back and look ahead and keep moving forward. The problem of grumbling. Question is, do we grumble like this? Question is, do you grumble like this? Do I grumble like this? And the answer is, absolutely we do. So we've got the problem of grumbling on one hand, And what's amazing to me about this whole story is that the answer from God is a provision of grace. The problem of grumbling and the provision of grace. What do these people deserve? What do these people deserve when after all of this they say, the water here is bitter? What what about after all this they say, we've got nothing to eat in our bellies. Back in Egypt we had fruit. Back in Egypt we had meat. Back in Egypt we had plenty of things to eat. What do they deserve when they complain like this to God? Yeah, you use whatever, whatever analogy you want. He, they deserve to be wiped out. They deserve for God to say, you ungrateful, whiny little children. I'm done with you. But what's he do? He says, oh, you're thirsty? Hey, throw that tree in the water and it, it'll be sweet and you'll be able to drink it. Oh, oh, you're thirsty? Moses, hit that rock. Hit that rock and water will come out of it and you'll be able to give the people something to drink. Oh, you're, you're hungry? When you wake up in the morning, there will be some stuff on the ground that you've never seen before and you gather it up and you eat it. Oh, you, you don't have any meat to eat? Well, tomorrow morning there's going to be quail. But this is the funny part. He says, I'll bring quail into the camp and I'll give you meat to eat. I'll give you so much of it, it'll come out your nose. You read it, that's exactly what he says. Read it. I'll give you so much quail, it'll come out your nose. So what does God do when the people grumble? He provides for them, and the provision is an act of grace. Because grace is when we get what we do not deserve, right? What do the people deserve? They deserve punishment for this whining and complaining. What do they get? They get provision. And if this is not a picture of us, I don't know what is. What do we deserve? We deserve death and hell. We deserve the wrath of God for all of eternity, right? Because we are sinners and have fallen short of the glory of God. What do we get? We get reconciliation to God through Jesus Christ. We get forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. We get eternity in heaven with God because of Jesus Christ. There is a problem of grumbling. There is a problem of sin. But there is a provision of grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we want to hold on to that as we see it in the Exodus story. So here's the point of all of this. He is, he is so patient and we are so fickle. That's one of my wife's favorite words, fickle. We are fickle. And he is patient. So what do we need to do? We need to praise him for his patience and grace, right? When I think about the grace of God in my life, when I think about the patience of God in my life, it should cause me to worship him. But I want to be careful that I don't presume upon his patience and his grace in my life. I don't want to say, well, in the past when I've complained, he's given me what I wanted. You know, last time I said the water was bitter, he put a tree in the water and it was sweet again. Last time I said I was hungry, he sent manna. So I'll just keep whining and he'll keep giving me what I want. That is a bad response to the grace of God, isn't it? If I sin and he shows me grace, should I sin all the more so that grace will abound all the more? Anybody know the biblical answer to that? Oh, may it never be. No, no, a thousand times no. That's not the right response to God's gracious gracious provision. The right response to God's gracious provision is gratitude and humble submission, right? So when we see God's grace in our life, we should respond that way rather than whining and complaining. All right, the next major scene. So we've been at grumbling and complaining in the wilderness. So we get through the Red Sea. We grumble and complain for a little while. And then God takes his people to a special mountain called Sinai. This is the next major part is at the mountain of Sinai. This is Exodus chapter 19 if you want to turn there. And at Sinai, 
we see the presence of God in a couple ways. Remember we said we're going to look for the presence of God throughout the wilderness wanderings. Well, we see the presence of God on this mountain. On this mountain there is thunder and lightning and a terrible trumpet sound. And what I want you to see is that on the mountain, when it comes to the presence of God, there's distance from the people and clear separation from the people. The presence of God is far from the people and separated from the people. And as you read about what happens at Sinai, you're also going to learn that God gives the instructions for the tabernacle. While Moses is up on the mountain with God, he gives him the instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is basically the mobile temple. This this place, this tent, where God's presence is going to dwell inside the Holy of Holies, so to speak, inside this special little room. God's presence is going to dwell there. So the presence of God then is not far from the people, it's near to the people. But just like on the mountain, there's still a great separation. And I want you to see that because when we start to connect all this to Jesus, we see that that in Christ, the presence of God is neither far from us nor separated from us. The presence of God is in us as believers. All of this is moving toward Jesus. So on the mountain, the presence of God is far from the people, And separated from the people. In the tabernacle, the presence of God is near to the people, but still separated from the people. The biggest part of what happens on Sinai is that God gives the law to Moses. All right, so this is the biggest part of the sermon today, too, and I want you to track with me on this. God delivers the law to Moses. The ESV Study Bible says it like this This section from Exodus 20 to 23, this section records what will later be referred to as the Book of the Covenant and includes the Ten Commandments. Instructions on worship, rules and principles for community life, and instructions for entering the land of Canaan. So we're going to get a lot of rules and regulations here for the next couple of books, really, in the scriptures. And I want you to notice the order of things here. God has delivered his people. God has brought them out of the land. God has brought them through the sea. God has shown up strong on behalf of his people. He has delivered them, and then he gives them the law. Right, Kevin DeYoung on Twitter said it this way. He said, The commands of God are not instructions for a people to be saved, but instructions for a people who have already been saved. Stand back and watch the salvation of the Lord, Moses says when he's at the Red Sea. They've already been saved, and then they are instructed about how to live. And if we get that wrong, if we get that order wrong, we'll miss everything when it comes to the gospel. If we start to see the law as a way for people to be saved, we'll miss out on grace. We've got to see the law as instructions for people who have been saved. We talked about this a little bit in your Sunday school class, I hope. The law is instruction for people who have been saved, not instruction for people to be saved. So we get some law at the end of Exodus. We get a lot of law in Leviticus. How many of you have just cashed it in there when you're trying to read through the Scriptures? Like you start out great in January, you rock it through Genesis, you rock it through Exodus, you get a little weary at the end of Exodus, and then you just quit by Leviticus chapter 3 or 4, you're done. Raise your hand. A couple honest folks, the rest of you are lying or have never tried at all. Another study Bible of mine says, the book of Leviticus is further and deeper unfolding of the divine human relationship codified At Mount Sinai, on the one hand, it assumes that Israel is sinful and impure. On the other hand, it describes how to deal with that sin and the impurity so that the Holy Lord can dwell in the people's midst. It goes on to say the entire content of Leviticus was given less than a month after the construction of the tabernacle between the first month of the year and the second month of the year following the exodus from Egypt. So we've got the end of Exodus and all of Leviticus is all about law. And when we think about that, we need to... Uh, for the purpose of overview, we need to think about what is the purpose of the law. Like when we as Christians who are following after Jesus, we're engaged with the law of God in the Old Testament, we need to ask ourselves, what is the purpose of the law? Well, that is a really complicated question to answer and really deserves probably six weeks of explanation. But I found one very simplified a uh, very distilled answer to that question that I want to share with you. And there are three parts of it. This comes from the Village Church in Texas. Uh, Matt Chandler is the pastor there. He says, reason number one for the law is to distinguish. One reason for all of this law is to distinguish. He says, the Mosaic law 
was to mark Israel as a people distinct from the rest of the nations. You saw this in Sunday school this morning, right? Why, why was Peter so worked up when God said, all these foods are now clean, you can eat them? Well, because, because he was used to living under this law, this ceremonial law that was intended to separate. It was really intended to separate and differentiate and distinguish between Israel and the rest of the world. So that's one purpose of why all these laws exist. We see this function in the various ceremonial aspects of the law, such as dietary and clothing restrictions. So number one, first reason for the law is to distinguish the people of God. Second reason of the law is to restrain the people of God. To distinguish and to restrain. The Mosaic law was to restrain evil, at least to some degree. Martin Luther once wrote, As a wild beast is tied to keep it from running amok, so the law bridles mad and furious man to keep him from running wild. The Mosaic law functions like a speed limit. This is great. The Mosaic law functions like a speed limit. Though posted, though a sign posted does not typically keep man from speeding, it does restrain speeding to some degree. Most will drive 45 or 50 miles per hour in a 40 mile per hour zone, but very few will burn through at 95 out of fear of the penalty of the law. Is that fair? There is at least some, even if you're breaking the law, there's at least some restraint in the law. Like you may go 5 miles an hour over, you may go 10 miles an hour over, but you don't often go 50 miles an hour over. Do you? I hope, I hope not. I hope you don't go 5 or 10. That's a problem in itself. You catch what he's saying there? It's to distinguish the people and to restrain the people, but the primary purpose of the law of God forever and ever has been to diagnose people. It's been to diagnose them. Listen to what this preacher says. He says, The Mosaic law was to diagnose sin and reveal transgression. This is the reason which receives the most explicit biblical treatment in passages such as Romans 3, Romans 5, Romans 7, Galatians 3. In this sense, the law is a mirror in which we see our filthiness. We read of gaining life by perfect obedience, but we find ourselves unable and thus cursed. He says, God awakens us through the law and leads us to acknowledge our desperate condition. This is the best picture I've ever read of what the law does in us. He says, the law is like an MRI scan that reveals our cancer but provides no cure. We respond to this revelation of disease and depravity in one of three ways. One, by trying harder and thus only compounding our condemnation. Two, by giving up in despair. Or three, by responding in desperation and hoping completely in God's merciful and gracious promises rather than our own works. It is in this sense that the law is, as Martin Luther declared, an usher to lead the way to grace. So don't get bogged down in Leviticus. Read it. Read it and say, I can't do this. I can't keep these laws. I can't do any of this. There's got to be another way. Oh, God, would you have mercy? Oh, God, would you show me grace? And God will answer and say, yes, that's why I sent Jesus. I sent Jesus to save you. I didn't send the law to save you. I sent the law to condemn you and to lead you to cry out for a Savior. And I sent Jesus as that Savior. So if the law diagnoses our problem, if the law says we have cancer, what's the solution to the cancer? More law? A different law? More self-discipline? What's the answer? What's the treatment for our cancer? The treatment is Christ. Where can we find true righteousness? In Christ, not in the law. Romans 10 says, Brethren, my heart's desire, my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Listen to verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. We don't find our righteousness in the law. We find our righteousness in Christ. We don't find our righteousness by grace. I mean by works. We find our righteousness by faith. We don't find our righteousness by merit. We find it by grace. Aren't you thankful for that? Yeah, otherwise you would have no righteousness and I would have no righteousness. But in Christ we have the righteousness of God. We are the righteousness of God in Christ. This is good news for all of us, right? So it is critical that we get our minds around the purpose of the law. It not only points to and paves the way for Jesus, it teaches us about our great need for Jesus. Jesus satisfies the need that the law reveals. John Bunyan wrote a little poem. It goes like this. Run, John, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. 
Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. So what happens when we look at the law? The law is saying, run, run, run. And you're saying, I can't, I can't, I don't even have legs. I can't run, I cannot do these things. And the gospel comes along and says, fly, fly. And it gives you wings to fly. This is not Red Bull, this is the gospel. (laughs) So get the timeline here. Moses, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai. And then he comes down with the commandments, the basic commandments, the first bit of the law. He says to the people, this is what God says to do. And the people all say, we'll do it. We're in. We will do what the Lord has said. Moses goes back up the mountain to receive the law on written tablets. God says, come back up here. I'm going to write all this down with my own hand on some stone tablets. You come back up and get it. And he goes back up also to receive the instructions for the tabernacle. He's up there for about 40 days. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. That's the next scene I want you to see is this golden calf. It's in Exodus chapter 32. I'll tell you this story, if I can. So Moses is up on the mountain for 40 days. And the people are all down below and they say, I don't think Moses is coming back. Hey, Aaron. Aaron, I don't think Moses is going to come back. We haven't seen him for 40 days. So how about you make us a God that we can follow and worship now? And so Aaron says, okay, bring me all the gold you've got. Bring me your earrings that you got from those Egyptians when God delivered you from slavery. Bring me that, those rings that they gave you when they forced you out of their land because of the mighty works of God. Right? Bring me all this gold you've got. And they do. They bring him a lot of gold and he melts it down and he fashions it into a golden calf, which is, echoes back to Egypt also melts it down and makes it into a golden calf. And when the people see the golden calf, they say, Behold, our God, who has delivered us from Egypt. Behold, our God, who has delivered us from Egypt that Aaron just made by melting down this gold. It's crazy, right? Then they offer sacrifices to this calf. Then they throw a wild party, and things just get absolutely out of control. Meanwhile, Moses is up on the mountain with God, and God knows everything that's going on, and God is furious about it. God says to Moses, you go back down there, I'm going to kill all of those people because of what they've done. I'm going to wipe them all out, and I'm going to start over with you, Moses. I'm going to build my nation out of you. And Moses says, Lord, you can't do that. You can't do that. Have mercy on these people. You made a promise to these people. You, you made a promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You can't do that. What will, what will everyone say? What will the nations say if you do this? What if you don't keep your promises? God changes his mind. This is a crazy part of the story. God changes his mind decides not to wipe them out. Moses goes back down the mountain. Here's the wild party going on. Walks into the camp. Finds Aaron. He says, Aaron, what have you done? What have you done, Aaron? And this is what Aaron says. He says, the people asked me to make them a golden calf, and they brought me gold. And I threw it into the fire, and this calf came out. <laughs> like, really? Aaron, you expect anybody to buy that? I just threw, what would you do, Moses, if the calf came out like that? We just threw the gold in the fire, and out came the calf. Of course we worship it. Moses is not happy. Moses is furious. In fact, he has these two tablets that God had written the law on. He just throws them down. God, with his finger, wrote on these tablets. And Moses throws them down and they break into pieces. Moses is furious, but he cries out to God on behalf of the people again. And he gathers the people together and he says, Listen, you have done a terrible thing. You've done a terrible thing by forsaking God like this, but I'm going to go back up to God and I'm going to plead that he would forgive you. I'm going to beg him to forgive you. And if he will, that would be great. So Moses goes back up to God and he says, God, God, would you please forgive these people? Would you please blot out their transgression? And he says this, but if you won't, blot me out too. If you won't forgive them, if you won't wipe away their transgressions, then just wipe me out too along with them. This is incredible, isn't it? Moses interceding on behalf of these rebellious people. Moses putting his own life on the line for these people. This is what I love most about this story. I think we see two things primarily in this story. One is we see the rebellious hearts of men on full display. Make us a God who will lead us. This is our God who has brought us out. I just threw the gold in the fire and it came out like a calf. We see the rebellion of men's hearts, but we also see Moses pleading for lost people. Verse 
Chapter 32, verse 30 says, On the next day Moses went to the people and said, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, the people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, if you will, forgive their sin. And if you will not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. Paul does the same thing in Romans chapter 9. He says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites. Catch what's going on there? Moses says, God, either forgive them or punish me along with them. Paul says, God, either forgive them, save them, or or trade me for them. This is an incredible thing about intercession and pleading on behalf of God, uh, on behalf of men and women to God for forgiveness. Here's what I want you to learn from this. Everyone on the planet, everyone on the planet has sinned against God and deserves punishment. That includes you, that includes me. We must never forget this. The question is, are we going to the Lord and asking him to show them grace? Are we who have been redeemed going to the Lord on behalf of lost people and begging them like Moses did, begging them, begging him like Paul did to save men and women who are sinful just like, just like us? Are we going to the Lord and asking him to show grace to them like Moses did, like Paul did? Or are we sitting back and doing nothing? Or worse yet, are we sitting back and hoping that God will bring judgment to these people? You know any lost people? Yeah, you do. You know lost people. Are you begging God to save them like Moses begged? Are you begging God to save them like Paul begged? Are you, or are you doing nothing? Or worse yet, do you see some people on the news and say, God, just wipe them out. I just want you to wipe them out. We must never forget that we used to be on the other side of this equation. This salvation story, we used to be on the other side of it. And I, I, for one, am thankful for a grandma and a grandpa and a mom and a dad and a brother and a friend and a Sunday school teacher and a pastor who didn't sit back and do nothing when they thought about my lostness. I'm thankful for a group of people who went before the Lord and said, God, would you save him? And he did. And I'm thinking about these names that we wrote down uh, years ago, men and women and boys and girls in our lives who are lost. How often are we going before the Lord and saying, God, would you save him? Would you save her? God, I'd put my life on the line if I could, if you'd save them. You got any of that in you? We need more of that. Next scene is generous giving for the construction of the tabernacle. The people, after this whole uh, scene with the golden calf, seem to get on track. God is gracious to them. God spares them. And they seem to get back on the right track, a better track at least. And they begin to focus on the construction of this portable temple where God will dwell and they will worship him. And basically what happens in this scene, this is in chapter 35. Moses says, bring your money. It's going to be expensive to build this tabernacle. And guess what they do? They bring their money. In fact, the most incredible thing happens in uh, yeah, verse, chapter 36, verse 5 and 7. Turn there. Chapter 36, verse 5, and, 5 to 7. Moses says, bring your money. And verse 5 says, they said to Moses, the people are bringing much more than enough for the contribution, for the construction of the work which the Lord commanded us to perform. So Moses issued a command, a proclamation was circulated through the camp, let no man or woman any longer perform work for the contribution of the sanctuary. Thus the people were restricted from bringing any more for the material they had was sufficient and more than enough for the work to perform it. Ha, ha. I'm looking forward to that business meeting someday here at First Baptist Church when we say, hey, you guys are not going to take the offering today because we've got more than enough. Because you did what the Lord asked you to do and you gave generously and you gave sacrificially. Moses said, give. Moses said, the Lord said, give. And the people gave with generosity. The other part of this work is that Moses said, the Lord has said, bring your talent. Not just bring your money, but bring your talent. Bring your time, bring your expertise. There's all this talk about skilled craftsmen in this section. You know, people who were good weavers and people who were good uh, carpenters and people who were good sewers. 
things like that. They come and they don't necessarily contribute just money, they contribute time. Moses says, the Lord said, bring your money, and they brought their money. Moses said, the Lord said, bring your talent, and they brought their talent. Look at verse uh, 8 of chapter 36. It says, all the skillful men worked among those who were performing the work, made the tabernacle. They need skillful men. Skillful men came. Here's the point. This is just like what the New Testament talks about, about the body of Christ. All these different things, doing what they've been designed to do. The people who have money, they give money. People who don't have money, give what money they have. The people who have skill, they use their skill. Every little person doing all of their little parts, and all of a sudden this huge project comes together. That's what we're designed to be, right? All of us are the body of Christ. Each of us are members of it. Each of us are a specific part of that body, and we must perform our functions. So the question is, what part are you? You want to say, well, I'm an eye. Then do some looking. You want to say, I'm an ear. Then do some hearing. I'm a hand. Then do some work. Whatever God has called you to do, designed you to do, let's do it. How is the body benefiting from your ministry? That's the next scene. Generous giving in the construction of the tabernacle. Next scene is glory in the tabernacle. This is the end of Exodus. The very last scene in Exodus has God's glory coming to dwell, the presence of God coming to dwell in the tabernacle. You can read it starting in verse 34. This is the climax of the second half of Exodus, and there is a parallel here to the life of Jesus. That word tabernacle means to dwell among. Listen to John 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Remember, at Sinai, the glory of God was far off. And there was separation. In the tabernacle, his presence was near, but there was still separation. Because of Christ, God now lives in us. A lot of times we say, oh, I wish we could go back to these Old Testament days. These Old Testament days where God appeared in a cloud, where God blew the trumpet, where God provided these things. We just wish we could go back there and experience the presence of God like they did. I think every time we say something like that, all of the Old Testament saints in heaven laugh at us. And they say, you have God in you. You have the presence of God living in you. We wish we had had that. We had fire and smoke on a mountain. We had a pillar of cloud. We had a trumpet sound. We had a room. You've got him in your life because of Christ. You want to experience the presence of God? You've got the presence of God in you. This is incredible, right? So the glory of God in the tabernacle leads us to think about the glory of God indwelling our lives. Man, we've got too much. I'm going to have to just quit. Well, well. so Kadesh Barnea is the next scene. Man, this is so much. Let's make this two parts. Can we do that? Okay, we're going to do that. Push pause. We'll do the rest next week. We'll make wilderness wanderings two weeks. I'm hesitant to do this because I'm afraid we're going to have to do it every week now. But there are three more, four more major scenes that we need to get through. The the scene at Kadesh Barnea and the spies and the grapes and all that. Korah's rebellion, the bronze serpent, there's just too much. Here's the point of all of today and really all of the Old Testament. All of this points to Jesus. You need to see that. If you're not seeing that yet, you need to see that. All of this points to Jesus. Sally Lloyd-Jones says it like this. There are lots of stories in the Bible. But all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. Oh, that's good news. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He's like the missing piece in a puzzle. The piece that makes all the other pieces fit together. And suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. You know who that baby she's referring to is? It's Jesus. This is all about Jesus. And what I want you to see is Jesus is better than all of this that we're reading. All of this is pointing to him, and he is better than all of this. His salvation is better than the crossing of the Red Sea. His grace is better than the law. His presence in us is better than a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire or smoke and thunder on a mountain or a tent covered in goat skin. He is better, his grace is better, his salvation is better, and his presence is better. And therefore, we should worship him. 
we should sing of this deliverance, this greater deliverance that we have experienced. We should pray for and preach this good news of saving grace to our neighbors and to the nations. Right? If, if it's a better salvation, we need to pray that it will come to bear in the lives of people we love and the lives of people we don't even know. And we should preach the gospel toward that end. And if his presence in us is better, then we should be satisfied that he is with us. In the land that is desert, we should not grumble and complain. We should not grumble and complain every step of the way on this long road to heaven. We're headed to the promised land, the ultimate promised land, and we should be satisfied that he is with us from here till there. Let's stand together and pray. God, we're so thankful for your word, and we want to get caught up in it. We want to get caught up in the story of redemption, the story of salvation, as you unfolded in the Old Testament. We want to see that all of this that we read in the Old Testament points us to Jesus, that the whole story is about him. He's the missing piece in the puzzle, piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and he is better. This salvation that you have brought to us in Christ is better than the crossing of the Red Sea. This grace that you have given to us is better than the law. This presence Your presence in us is better than a pillar of cloud. It's better than fire on the mountain. It's better than a tent covered in goat skin. So God, I pray that you teach us to respond by worshiping you, by preaching the good news, and by abiding in you as we live this wilderness wandering. God, we want to pray for men and women and boys and girls who are far from you, who are dead in their trespasses and sins. They're lost. They're without you. And we pray that you come to them. You show them your abundant grace. Show them your amazing mercy. Give them faith to believe. Give them repentance to turn away from sin and turn toward you. And God, we pray that you'll save them by your grace, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.